0: welcome to the beach grove united methodist church sermon podcast we are a church located in suffolk virginia and each week we post our sermons from our sunday morning worship service sermon notes are linked in the podcast notes and you can go and open them now and follow along as you listen our current series is called everyday saints join us and listen along as we explore what it means to be an everyday saint of the faith the characteristics of saints, and those that have influenced our own spiritual growth as saints among the great cloud of witnesses. All of this leading to our celebration of All Saints Sunday on November the 7th. Go and like our Facebook page, subscribe to our YouTube channel, both of which are linked in the podcast notes below, and subscribe to this podcast. We hope you enjoy this week's message, and please don't forget to share it with others.
1: Our gospel lesson this morning comes to us from 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 through 27. One body with many members. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. Indeed, the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot would say, Because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear would say, Because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body. That would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would hearing be? If the whole body were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many members, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the members of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable, and those members of the body we think less honorable, we clothe with greater honor and our less respectable members are treated with greater respect, whereas our more respectable members do not need this. But God has so arranged the body, giving the greater honor to the inferior member, that there may be no dissension within the body, but the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together with it. If one member is honored, All rejoice together with it. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. This is the word for the people of God. Thanks be to God.
0: Let us pray. Holy and gracious God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of each one of our hearts be holy and pleasing to you that through your word for us this day, we would learn more about you and more about our role as saints in this world. In your son's name we pray. Amen. I invite you to take out your notes page there. Um, Merry Christmas. Uh, you have a lot of white space, uh, a lot of lines in there. Uh, you know, it's, it's not often that I have two sermon notes that, that don't have notes in them so close together. I know my last one was only just a number of, a few weeks ago, um, but but yet again we get into those busy seasons of life. And so I invite you uh, to to find a pen. Uh, that is on you or a pencil that is in the pew in front of you. I invite you to to maybe jot down your own notes. If you are joining us online, you also have a notes page there. Friends, I did give you the scripture this morning for you to circle, underline, do with what you will as we move together through this message today and as we hear these words of God. You know in the early, so we've been going along this series now and in each week we've we've lifted up a saint that has been a part of our Wesleyan tradition um, and, and you've probably noticed that I haven't sort of gone after the low-hanging fruit, right? I haven't gone after John and Charles as it could so easily be done, right? You know, we've, we've had various, we've had a few different Methodists who we have looked at for each of these different individual characteristics, and i'm kind of going to go after john and charles a little bit this week but even more generally i want to go after this understanding in the early methodist movement that really this isn't even a wesleyan a methodist ideal it's just it's something that john and charles latched onto Uh, When they were uh, in their days at Oxford, at King's College, and they were doing this work together in community, and these small groups, these accountability groups, these these covenant groups that they formed, and it played off of this idea from the early church tradition of these, these groups of people that gathered together for accountability, for covenant, and to help each other along in this path of sanctification. And so when when John and Charles and and the early movers in the Methodist movement began to come over to America and began to do their work, they would implement this in their communities, right? They'd come into a community and they'd preach a sermon, one sermon, one hour long sermon. So friends, be thankful for the, you know, 20 minutes that you get here because at least I'm not John, (laughs) They'd come into a community and they'd preach a sermon and they'd lead this large group of people and then they would encourage the people to break up into these smaller groups in which they could be with one another in deeper relationship because Wesley and and those who were a part of that early Methodist movement understood the importance of relationships. Relationships at many different levels, not just At the corporate level, right? It's not just the relationships that we form here in worship. Relationships at the personal level, right? Relationships that we can form in smaller groups. And even relationships we can form as part of a broader society in general. And so Wesley played upon these different thoughts, these different ideas, these different understandings as they built these communities, and then it even became part of the early Methodist model, right? When, when the Church of England pulled all their priests out during the time of the Revolution, and Wesley saw an opportunity that these people continued to need this idea, this sense of a communal faith, he sent, he sent preachers over. Well, he, he kind of circumvented the church and, and you know commissioned a bishop, which, you know, I mean... No, I'm kidding. I'm not going to do that today. No, he, he, he commissioned he commissioned a bishop. He commissioned them to go and, and commissioned Francis Asbury. And, and, and they began to ordain pastors and the pastors. But see, there were only a few pastors. So pastors would have to go around on horseback and ride. And then they'd come into the community and they'd preach. And then they'd go and they'd ride and they'd go to another community and they'd preach. But you see, there was that in-between work in which they continued to build relationships in the community. All the while, relationships being the center focal point of these communities and the ways that relationships were formed at the various different levels. Friends, this is what it means to be saints in the church. As we continue to explore these ideals of sainthood that establish and make within us disciples for the kingdom of God, we begin to know and look and understand this, this final characteristic that I'm going to latch on to here today. This final characteristic of what it means to be in relationship. Right, We've already covered, we've already looked at what it means to be in relationship with God. Right, That was that sense of piety that we talked about, that Bob talked about a couple of weeks ago. That is, the, that is the focal point of our relationship with God. The way that we practice our personal piety is the way we grow, the way we enhance, the way we mature our relationship with God. And so the other end of that is the way that we grow, enhance, and mature our relationship with others through God. And so as we have unpacked in this series what it means to be an everyday saint, that is what it means to be a disciple of the kingdom, we come to this last characteristic that that I'm going to to put forth, right? I've only got a certain amount of time here to to get us through this series, so I kind of latched on to four that I thought were really uh, impactful in part. And so relationships become this foundation part of our faith because because they help us to know and to be known. They fill these two basic understandings of human existence. This idea that we are both known and that we know others, right? We are known by others and we know others. Right There is this aspect of human existence that desires to be known, and we've filled that by being known by God. But there's also this aspect in which we are looking for a tangible knowing as we live into our existence. And so not only do we want to be known by God, but we want to be known by others, and therefore we want to know other people. I say this to people who tell me they're introverted all the time. Even the most introverted people in this world still want to know others and be known. Now, they want it on different standards than us extroverts here, right? I just want to know everyone. Y'all introverts, y'all just wanna know people and then you like wanna go back home and like restore your internal battery. But there's still that basic understanding that we want to be known and we still want to know others. Why? Because it is in those relationships that we are able to live out our faith. There's always at some desire, at some level, in some way of life to know and to be known. And this is the aspect of sainthood that we latch on to today. Right? And this is where we continue to explore this understanding of the nature of the church. Right? I I introduced us a little bit to it last week as we began to talk about this idea between nature and mission, right? Our mission, the mission of the church, at least the mission in the United Methodist Church, is to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. A plus on my ordination exams, friends. make disciples of Jesus Christ for the, mission, for the transformation of the world. That is our mission as the church, right? When we go and we are church for other people, that is what we are looking to do. We seek to spread who Jesus Christ is. However, that does not answer the pivotal question of why the church exists, right? And we talked about last week, the church does not exist to prop itself up. But the church exists as a community of faith, the nature of the church is to be community. The nature of the church is to do this work to which God has called us to do. And so within that nature, within the reason why the church exists, is this nature in which we are in relationship. And again, like we see in this manner of the early Methodist movement, we are in relationship in different levels. And we are in relationship in different ways with different people, but ultimately, we are in relationship. We are in relationship with those whom we are closest to, whom we have the greatest level of accountability and vulnerability to in our churches, our small groups, those who are a part of that close-knit circle who help us in our spiritual transformation. We are in relationship, friends, with those who are sitting right here in the sanctuary, those who are joining us online this morning. Friends, this is a relationship that we have. We are in relationship with those who are a part of this community, whether they worship in this service, whether they worship in the 930 service, whether they worship online, whether they are absent this Sunday for any variety of number of reasons, whether they have not been able to be at church for years. Friends, we are in relationship with everybody who is a part of this community. And friends, we are in relationship with everyone who lives in Suffolk. Friends, we are in relationship with everyone who lives in Virginia. We are in relationship with everyone who lives in the U.S. We are in relationship with everyone across this world at some various level. Relationships define who we are, and relationships define our sense of community. And so when we begin to think about why the church exists, the church exists so that we can be in relationship with one another and so that we can know and understand each other and ourselves. And as we unpack it, and as we look, Paul gives us this beautiful, this, this just great and wonderful example of what it means to be community and what it means to be in relationship when he begins to talk about the body of Christ. And when he begins to lay forth for us what it means to be the body of Christ, Paul is trying to express to the Corinthian church what it means to be in community with one another. Because The Corinthian church is not like, if I were looking for like a model ideal church to like lift up in ancient times, I probably would not have gone to the Corinthians. Uh, They they were a pretty dysfunctional church. But see, the cool thing about the Corinthians being a dysfunctional church is that we can kind of look in here from Paul, well, fear of those we disagree with, fear of those that we could never identify with, guide us rather than to see the good of the world through the eyes of God. We have allowed fear to become our theology and to become the marker of how we share God's love and even to think of how others may receive God's love. And so what the psalmist reminds us of here today is rather than perpetuate the fear of the world and take part in the inevitable bloodshed of war that will come forth from it, the psalmist tells us in verse in verse 8, the Lord, sorry, seven. The Lord is my chosen portion. And then into verse eight, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. And the night also instructs my instruct, in the night also my heart instructs me. I keep the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. Therefore my heart is glad and my soul rejoices, my body also rests secure. You want to go to know the greatest thing about faith? God has chosen the whole of creation to be part of the adoptive kingdom. And when we view the world through the eyes of the kingdom of God, instead of seeing the fear, instead of seeing the hatred, instead of seeing the judgmental nature, we can see the world through the good that it can be not through the things that may frustrate us or cause us to fear. Because you see, just like us who are in this frustrated cycle of seemingly feeling like everything is about our impending doom, the psalmist clearly seems to be stuck in this same frustrating cycle. And in that is praying to God to offer this mindset of existing and being comforted and safe, to be able to see the good through God's eyes. And that's the cool thing about this psalm, is, is if we look at the introduction to this psalm, if you had it at the top, which I, I did not put it there, mistaken. Well, I think I put it, did I put it in your notes? Let us see. I did not put it in your notes. I apologize. Well, you've got a little bit of white space at the bottom. Oh, you got a little bit more white space on the front. Maybe you should write it there. <laughs> so the title of this psalm in Scripture is a miktum of David. And, and many people think that this psalm might have been written by David, although current biblical scholars would say probably not. They just used the name of David because it was uh, written within the temple. And, and one of the biblical scholars that I was reading in preparation for this sermon really focused on that word mictum. Which means to be inscribed or to be written. And this was not any sort of inscription or writing, any particular. This was a special one because the way that this word is used was that it was an inscription or something that is written with the idea of being made permanent. And so this would have been a carved inscription. This would have been, think about it, your, your book of common prayer, your, your, your hymnal with all the prayers in it. These, this was a prayer that would have been inscribed somewhere in the temple for people to come and to pray when they were having tough times. This prayer was written down and deposited so that it could be offered to God over and over and over again that sound familiar to anybody? Maybe like a certain prayer that we have written on the front of our bulletins that we pray over and over and over again, seeking for God, seeking not only for our mindset to shift about our church, but also calling upon God to do amazing and miraculous things. What an amazing example of a breakthrough prayer that we have right here again in Scripture. And like those breakthrough prayers we looked at earlier this fall, imagine the ways that God could break through in a prayer like this. Imagine the shift of mindset that happens when this prayer is read. Imagine how our eyes may be opened that we may see the good, that we may look upon our neighbor and see the blessing of God upon them, rather than the fear we have been told to idolize. It becomes important especially here and now in our contemporary time, as we see all the stuff that is happening around us that increasingly perpetuates the fears that draw us away from the image of the kingdom of God that God has planned for creation. And it's one of the reasons we see people wrestle with their role and purpose, not just in life, but in the church. And we see people wrestle with this every day and it's up to us to decide are we going to allow our lives to be guided by fear or are we going to be allow our life or are we going to rest in the assurance of God and allow it to be guided by God and the good that the world can be you know i've been having conversations with my sister in law she's been wrestling with her faith and what her faith looks like as she's in a transitional time in her life and she's been going through sort of this, this mental and emotional crisis and she seeks this, this to see the world through God. And so what this has meant for her is she's had to turn off Facebook because for her it just becomes way too much of perpetuating the fear that exists within her. How many of us would love to just like turn off Facebook, right? I often make excuses as to why I can't do that. You know, I, well, I need it for work. Betty's in the back like, well, I don't have a computer, so it's really easy for me. <laughs> Think to yourself those things in your life that perpetuate those fears, that kind of raise that anxiety and stress level. And for her, that's what it was doing. She was, she was unable to rest in the assurance of God, and she was unable to see the good because she was completely surrounded by this perpetuation of fear and of judgment and of hatred by, by friends of hers. And as she sought to heal from this nature, she decided that this was something that she needed to do. This changed the narrative for her of the kingdom of God and of the world, and she sought to find healing through this nature. Will she ever return to Facebook? I don't know. Does it really matter? Not really. But has she already found new ways to live into this godly image Yes. In distancing herself from the narrative perpetuated through her Facebook feed, she's, she's found new relationships that have bolstered her faith and have allowed her to enter into this new relationship that defines the good in the world and continues to open her eyes. Now, am I telling you Facebook's a bad place? No. I mean, I'll let that be your decision. Unless you feel it harming you. Now you see someone like me. I've tried to find a balance. Where I can see joy. Without being driven by the fear and hatred. Some days are better than others. Some days I open my Facebook feed. And I close it after seeing the first post. Some days I open my Facebook feed. And I see joy and I see happiness. And some days when I'm feeling really down, and open my Facebook feed and I see fear, I decide to post my own joy and happiness. We will all find our own means and manners of recentering ourselves and our theology back on God and away from fear. But if we don't intentionally take the time to recenter ourselves, then the same cycles of fear that have driven our society will continue to drive us. And so how often are we willing to rest and reside in the presence of God? And how often are we willing to see the ways in which the voices that preach fear of the other are actually not preaching for God, but against God? And therefore drawing us towards the false idols that color the picture of God's kingdom. If I've learned one thing in my time of Christian learning and being a pastor, it is that God and fear do not mix. Now, yes, we see fear used in the Bible in terms of our relationship with God, but we have to remember that when we look at that translation of fear, it is not a manner of fear in terms of being scared. It is fear as a matter of reverence. And so I'll say again, fear and God do not mix. We cannot be scared of God the same way that I'm scared of spiders, and I have to yell at my wife to come kill one when I see it. Friends, we all have our burdens to bear. My wife does the bugs in the house. We revere God in the manner in which we see the world through God's eyes. We see the good that the world can be and we embody the fruits of the Spirit as we seek to share Christ's love with others. Amen. We learn from Christ what it means to not only love God, but to love neighbor. We seek to be a part of the kingdom that God promises us as we move along this journey. The question is, Do we truly believe this? Do we truly believe this? And are we willing to be a part of God's kingdom? Or will we continue to worship a society that teaches us that certain people are better? Or that shows us only one manner of society that we have created? Or are we here to embrace the kingdom and work for Christ? Amen.